Hi, my name is Danielle and you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. On this podcast, we discuss subjects that might be creepy to some and sometimes even frightening. Some of our episodes will deal with serious subject matter, while others will be more lighthearted. Please keep in mind that I am not an expert on any of the topics I cover, just an interested party, and as always, listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone and welcome back. I'm Danielle. I'm paul And you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. So, it's official. We've made it to 2021. Yay. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone is happy to be leaving 2020 behind, despite the fact that I don't think we're too sure of what this year is going to bring us. I think that we've all become a little bit more accustomed to the status quo, so even though it's still a difficult time and we need to be really cautious, hopefully we can start this new year feeling a little bit better and taking care of ourselves in whichever way that entails. I haven't heard anybody complain about leaving 2020 behind. I haven't either. I want to make sure to thank everyone who's been listening and supporting the podcast for the last year. This is a brand new endeavor for me, and there was certainly a learning curve. I've really enjoyed putting out weekly episodes for everyone to listen to. I hope you've been enjoying following us on this adventure as well. And I'd also like to thank you for being my co-host through all these episodes. Enjoy every minute. That's great. So we're going to ease into the new year with a subject matter that's maybe not quite so dark. Um, It doesn't involve murder or missing people. On this week's episode, we're going to discuss the Dion quintuplets. I actually thought that everyone knew about the Dion quintuplets as kind of like part of Canadian history. But just recently, my book club was reading a book that had kind of a sideline story about them and there were some people that hadn't heard of them before. So it gave me the idea that maybe this is something we should cover. That's amazing because there were, I believe, uh, some sort of history vignette on t- TV about the the quintuplets for the longest time. Yeah, and I don't know if it just maybe after a certain year just kind of stopped running and fell out of people's minds. And for people who don't know about them, it might sound a little bit strange to be talking about quintuplets on a crime or mystery podcast. If you're thinking that, just keep listening There's no charges laid in the story, there's no sort of obvious crime that took place, but it is a dark thing that did happen in our Canadian history. Yeah, and I think because of when it happened, people had a different way of looking at things. Yeah. There's, you know, it's it's a little shocking by today's standards. In the 1930s, the world was going through a pretty rough patch. So this was the period known as the Great Depression. I think just generally the population was ready to find any kind of joy or happiness in any event that was going on around the world. And a farming family in Ontario was about to give people a reason to rejoice. According to Wikipedia, on May 28, 1934, in Corbet, Ontario, a woman was going into labor. The labor was premature, but the woman, named Elzia, thought that she was pregnant with twins. So I don't think premature labor, if you had a twin birth back then, was unusual. I don't actually think it's that unusual nowadays either. And they probably didn't have that much 
information on what was going on with her back then. So she probably was just assuming it was, she was having twins. Right. And she had five other children at home. So this wasn't her first pregnancy. So I can see how she might have thought it felt different, something was off, or she could feel more than one baby moving. She went into labor early, but this was two months too early, which was much too early, especially back in the 1930s. Dr. Alan Defoe was present for the delivery, and there were also two midwives that were present. But to everyone's surprise, these weren't twins. Five babies were born that day, and miraculously, they seemed to be thriving. At the time of their birth, the quints were said to weigh, in total, 13 pounds. So that's big for one baby, but it's not very big for five. When you divide it by five, it's, it's pretty little yes. featherweight. It was believed at the time of their birth and actually later confirmed that the girls were identical and that Mrs. Dion was actually carrying sextuplets but had miscarried one of the babies earlier in her pregnancy. That's amazing. And this is before the time of fertility drugs, um, so these things really were not common. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, there had only been two previous cases of quintuplets recorded, and none of them had survived past the first few days. This would be the first living quintuplets on record in the entire world. Right here in Canada. Right here in Canada. The girls were named Annette, Emilie, Yvonne, Cécile, and Marie. Now, the Dion family was not a rich family. They were poor French Canadians, and already, like I mentioned, they had five other kids at home. As soon as the news hit the press about the quintuplets' birth, the world was interested. It took no time for people to flock to their little house. Some people wanted to help out. Some people just wanted to see what was going on. I'm sure after giving birth to five children and have, having ten kids in the house, it's not kind of what you want happening around you. No, that's quite a shock to the system. For sure. Uh, but pretty much immediately, people were also ready to lend a hand and help out in any way they could. So initially, a wicker basket was lent by the neighbors, and the girls were placed in the basket with some warm blankets and kept near the fireplace. They didn't have a hospital nearby to go to. They didn't have incubators, so that's how they were keeping the girls warm. They were being fed with water sweetened with corn syrup, which I don't think is a thing that happens today. I don't, I don't think you'd find a doctor today that would recommend that. Well-wishers were sending letters as well with recommendations of how to take care of the girls. A lot of them involved alcohol, um, so giving the babies alcohol to prevent um, like digestive issues and things like that. Yeah. Later on, the girls were moved into a larger laundry basket and kept warm with water bottles, so hot water bottles. Um, but eventually they were sent to incubators by a hospital to put the girls in. So, I'm not a parent. I've never experienced taking a newborn home for the first time. I've heard stories about it. I don't think you need to be a parent to realize the complexity and the cost of dealing with five newborn babies at once. Well, I can well remember coming home from the hospital with our first child. And it's nerve-wracking, 
had there been five? So just imagine five newborn babies, five older children running around the house, being in the middle of the Great Depression with basically nothing to your name. I'm sure the Dion parents must have felt completely overwhelmed with the future that they faced. Oliva Dion was the girl's father. He was approached by a fair exhibitor from Chicago shortly after the girl's birth, according to an article in the Washington Post. So he told Oliva that he wanted to display the girls at his fair. I understand that through our current perspective, this sounds pretty crazy, but it was something that was done pretty regularly back then. Oh, it happened with anybody that had any form of disability. Uh, they were put on display. And, and there was no television or nothing like that. So people were hungry for entertainment, I guess. Yeah, and there's some, you can read some stuff about that, about um, the fairs and the circuses and how they employed people that may not have otherwise been able to find gainful employment. And then at one point there was a public outcry about this and how cruel and unfair it was. Then all of a sudden these people found themselves without work, which wasn't a better life for them. So, I mean, putting a premature baby in a fair, I think, may not be in their best interest for their health at all. But uh, at the time, it wasn't unusual. The Dion parents were actually convinced by their priest and Dr. Defoe that this would be in the girl's best interest. And they signed a contract with the fair. I think a lot of it was just the fact that they knew they didn't have the means to support the girls. Well, if they've found a way to maybe have a little extra income and it would have helped them care for those five girls, but also the other five children that were at home. Yeah. But it's a little mind-boggling to think that the priest would get involved in that sort of... Tell them it uh, was a good idea. Right, right. According to Wikipedia, the contract was signed, and a few days later, Oliva tried to revoke the contract, and he said that his wife hadn't signed, though she had like verbally agreed to it. But the people from the fair were adamant that the contract was binding. Shortly after this, custody of the Quince was actually given to the Red Cross by their parents for a period of two years. So the reason this was done was actually to protect them from the fair contract in Chicago. So if the Red Cross and the government had custody of them, they couldn't be taken away. So they couldn't have taken them over the border. Yeah. The contract could no longer be binding, I think, because the parents didn't have custody, so they didn't have the right to sign that custody away, is my understanding of what had happened there. All the, the decision-making rights in regards to the children were handed over to the Red Cross. Everything. So the parents had no legal right to make any decision. Correct. For two years. For two years initially. And the, the plan behind that as well was that all the cost of their care and upkeep would be taken over so the parents didn't have to worry about that either. This was a two-year contract and the plan was that the parents would get the girls back after two years. The girls were just two months old when all of this was happening. While the Red Cross had custody and was taking care of the Quints, the Dion parents actually went on a trip to Chicago, I guess as a kind of a press tour as the parents of the Quints. Um, because of this event, though, the government extended the guardianship of the girls. So what they said is that they wanted to protect them from further exploitation. 
So they took it upon themselves to take custody of the children. So it was like a protection order. Or... Allegedly. I mean, that that's what it was on paper. Right. So the girls became wards of the crown in 1935, and this was supposed to last until they turned 18 years old. There was a board of trustees that would oversee all the decisions involving the quints. The girl's father was on that board, but he being the only, like the one sort of solitary voice, um, he didn't feel like he had much pull or much say into what was going on. So their lives are already being run like some big company. Yeah. They they went viral, I guess, in today's terms, and people exploited them as soon as they were born. I think they've seen an opportunity to make money right from day one. Yeah. The public interest started right from day one, and I think you're right. I think the government saw this and quickly saw a way to take advantage of it. A nursery was built for the girls across from the farmhouse where their parents lived. They would live in this nursery until they were nine years old. The facility had an outdoor play area, and I guess the best way of describing it would be a little bit like a zoo enclosure. So there was mesh and the girls couldn't really see outside, but as they got older, they went outside to play and they could hear people on the other side. So people would come by and watch them play outside. Um, I believe their indoor play area also had like a viewing gallery where people could go and watch them. So you're right, it, it, it was a human zoo. Essentially. There was enormous public interest in these girls, and it was taken advantage of. The girls had a really strictly regimented day at the nursery, but they'd also have photo ops, so they would endorse products. They appeared in a bunch of movies. Almost three million people walked through the observation gallery to watch the girls. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And that's 1930. Like, traveling isn't like it is today. Right. And in small town Ontario or village Ontario. Yeah. The nursery was known as Quintland and became one of the biggest public attractions in Ontario. It was bigger than Niagara Falls. The girls brought in over $50 million in revenue through tourism. Wow. There was a gift shop where tourists could buy autographed pictures, headshots, and even rocks from the area that were supposed to promote virility. (laughs) Apparently, the bin of rocks needed to be refilled every single day. Now, keep in mind that the plan was... The plan was originally when the government took over custody was that the girls wouldn't be exploited. It was to stop exploitation. But what were they doing? This is exactly what it is that they were trying to protect them from. Well, I think that the the agenda was that the quints wouldn't be exploited by anybody else but them. Yeah. Meanwhile, Oliva was pushing to regain custody of the girls, and there was more and more public backing to his to his request. In 1943, when the girls were nine, the parents regained custody, and they all moved into a large mansion that the parents had built behind the nursery. Now, the parents were poor, so this money was from the girls' earnings. I think a lot of people, when the parents got custody, were thinking that the government had basically manipulated them into losing their children, 
And I think a lot of that was going on. But according to the girls later on, they would say that the time in the nursery was the best time of their lives, despite the fact that they were constantly on display. According to them, the time with their parents was not good at all. They felt like they were being treated like servants, spoken to as a unit, like they weren't five individual people, but just one. They said that they were beaten by their parents as well. And three of the girls also alleged that their father sexually assaulted them. All they had to base their, themselves on was their previously being taken care of by the government and put on display and then actually moving into a family and having to, I guess, share the space and the parents' time with, uh, with two parents. They must have had a whole staff when they were wards of the court. Yeah. They left home when they were 18 years old. Three of them got married and had children and families of their own. Emilie became a nun, and Yvonne went into nursing school and eventually became a librarian. Emilie died quite young. She was only 20 years old. She'd been having seizures for a while. Back then, epilepsy had a lot of stigma surrounding it, so they were keeping that a secret from the public. But apparently one night she had a seizure and there was supposed to be someone with her and there wasn't and she was face down in her bed and I think she suffocated. Back then was not uncommon for even the child from a single birth to not reach adulthood. Yeah. So here you've got five, you know, 20 years is not very old by our standards today. But Yeah, it, it was a different time. I mean, dizzy... Disease was more rampant, childhood disease especially. We didn't have the vaccines like we do nowadays, and we didn't have the medication or even you weren't always able to get the medical services that you needed. The accessibility to it wasn't there. So a lot of things that wouldn't be a big deal nowadays were a really big deal back then. In 1970, Mari passed away from a blood clot. As the girls grew into women, they really receded from the public eye. They only stepped forward now and then when there was an important cause that they wanted to talk about. I'm not really going to go into great details about their adult lives because they did try to remain private at that point. I mean, their childhood is very well documented and generally very well known, but their adult lives are maybe not secret, but a lot less uh, public knowledge about it. There are a few things that I do want to talk about, though. After fighting for some years to receive compensation from the government over the way they were exploited, the three remaining sisters received a $2.8 million settlement in 1998. It took the most of their lives to finally get to the point where they received that settlement. $2.8 million to be split amongst the three? I think it ended up being split amongst four because one of the sisters who passed, Mari, had children. So the money was um, given to her, her children. But from what I read, it looks like they got about $750,000 after lawyers' fees, taxes, and all of that. Unfortunately, Yvonne passed away in 2001, so she didn't, have much of, she didn't have much time to enjoy that settlement or do anything with it. So Cecile and Annette are the only ones that remain. After the settlement, Cecile's son 
was in charge of her finances, but according to an article I found uh, in the Montreal Gazette from 2016, her son actually disappeared with a bulk of her estate and left her completely penniless. It just gets worse. It just gets worse. So in that article, she was talking about how, um, I mean, her other sister that's still alive helps out like she can, but she's essentially, like her housing and all that is government subsidized. She has nothing left. And from what I could see, he's never been found. So he would have disappeared in what year? The article was out in 2016, and they said four years before that, so 2012. Shouldn't have been that easy to disappear even then. I just don't know how much, well, first of all, how much interest there is in finding him. But second of all, I mean, it is her son. I don't know how hard she's pushing for him to be found either. That's kind of a double-edged knife on that one. Yeah, there's that part of it too. The Dion Quints were exploited pretty much all of their life. They were a miracle at the time of their birth. And it was something that really seemed to uplift the world. And everybody thought that they could be involved in it. And I think we do see that a lot, even nowadays with social media. There are things that we might be interested in that are being posted, things that are being shown. But I think sometimes we have to remember that you need to think about the person on the other end. Like, are they giving consent to this, especially when it comes to children? Well, people tend to have this natural curiosity about things that are different. And a few years ago, we had a reality TV series based on the whole other bunch of kids. I don't, the, the Dugans. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Like a really large family. Uh, there was eight, I think. Yeah. So, well, anyways. But again, it was almost a repeat of what happened to the Dions in the, you know, in the present time. And the the show was popular, but then all this dirt started coming out about the family so again it's we haven't learned by history no and there was another one i remember um john and kate plus eight or something on on the learning channel which after a while was definitely not a learning channel but it was the same idea it was a multiple birth and everything seemed all rosy in the beginning but even now you get anything that comes out like you're standing in the lineup at the grocery store and you see articles about that family and it's just at, at one point you have to like when do we stop looking when is it okay to appreciate and look and enjoy but when where is that line where you have to say what's private needs to remain private and that's true as a viewing public but also as the person putting yourself out there right so we're going to finish up tonight with a moment of kindness so I do have one it was a story that was shared from a listener, um, a story that they saw on Facebook and they shared with me. I think it happened in Nova Scotia, if I remember it correctly, but there was this route that a garbage truck driver would do every week, and every week he would see a little boy at the window, just like in awe of the in the garbage truck and very much excited about watching it every week. Right before Christmas, on his own time, with his own money, the man, one of the, the employees that drove the garbage truck, stopped by the house to give a toy garbage truck to the little boy. And the card on the gift said to the boy in the window, which I think is a really nice gesture. Like the fact that he noticed, the fact, I'm pretty sure that kid will, if he's old enough, will remember that. 
that gesture for a long time. It's amazing how some kids are intrigued by different things. Like in this case, like a garbage truck. You hear kids wanting to be a police officer or a nurse or a doctor, but not very many kids want to be uh, a driver of a garbage truck. As always, thanks to everyone who's been listening. If you could take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, that would be appreciated. Stay safe out there and have a good night.